I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy, your favorite daily public policy podcast by the Takshashila Institution. I am Anushka Saxena, a research analyst with the Institution's Indo-Pacific Studies program, and today. I'll be quizzing Manoj Kevalramani, the chairperson of the program, on Xi Jinping thought on culture and the meaning behind this push towards ideological and cultural work. Welcome, Manoj. Thank you so much, Anushka. Right. So uh, recently, we saw that uh, the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China concluded a national conference on propaganda and ideological work. And the big announcement Xi Jinping made there was the institution of a Xi Jinping thought on culture. Now it's one in the seven uh, thoughts that can be attributed to Xi Jinping, apart from the many other dictums he's kind of been known to lead. Um, so one is, of course, the Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, and uh, six uh, kind of sub thoughts, which are economy, diplomacy, military, environment, rule of law, and now culture. So, uh, Manoj, my first question to you is, and and it's both a joke and a serious question, which is why does Xi Jinping think so much, and what was the need for this Xi Jinping thought on culture? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think that look, um, when we think about why Xi Jinping thinks so much. and why we have all these different kinds of thoughts i think the first thing to understand is what is the relevance of uh, the idea of a thought uh, and uh, an ideological thought in the leader's mind and this i think sort of goes back to the notions of uh, marxism being this uh, ideology which uh, is essentially a truth seeking ideology right and therefore uh, it is trying to distill truth from historical events and the churn between factors of production and their engagement with people and how history therefore progresses um, so if you look at what the communist party constantly talks about it talks about how understanding this process uh, is a scientific pursuit and when you understand this process you arrive at certain truths and the quality of a leader depends on his or her its I don't think there's ever been a her in uh, China in the Communist Party, but uh, the quality of the leader is dependent on the ability to identify these sort of epistemic uh, realities, right? These truths, um, and that then gives you insight into world events, into social currents, and so on and so forth, and therefore then informs policy, right? So in that sense, uh, if you look at Communist Party of China's discourse, and if you look at most communist discourse, uh, even in the Soviet era, what you will see is that there is this. attachment to the idea of truth and therefore inherently uh, the leader's vision and the leader sort of ability to distill this truth and by that guide policy uh, is critical to some in some ways to his legitimacy so that that is one reason why xi jinping thinks so much right because it is partly critical to legitimacy also um, within the sort of pantheon of different ideas right so for example if people would know that you know you have xi jinping thought but you had Deng Xiaoping's theory, 
right? Uh, you had uh, Mao Zedong thought. You have theory of three represents by Jiang Zemin, right? So uh, why is it that, the, what is the difference? So within the sort of hierarchy uh, in the Chinese system, thought is the highest form. And theory sort of is before that. Um, and of course, then if you have your name attached to a thought, um, it gives you a special sort of unique position. There are only two people uh, in China who've had who've had a name attached to their thought, um, which is uh, Mao Zedong and uh, then uh, Xi Jinping now. So it, it places him at this certain position. Now, if you have now created this thought, which bestows upon you legitimacy and which then also has to inform policy, because at the end of the day, policy must be a product of the vision that the leadership has cultivated. It has to have implications for all aspects of society because within, uh, uh, in Marxist context and within the communist party system, the Leninist party state system, the party state sort of embeds itself in all aspects of society. So therefore, you must have views on all aspects of society. And culture is a critical aspect of society in general, but also in Marxist discourse and theory. Um, so therefore, you must have a Xi Jinping thought on culture. So the answer to why Xi Jinping thinks so much is because uh, if he has to sustain the status as a leader uh, of the kind of status that he's acquired and the kind of status that he wants to sustain, he must think so much. Right. So uh, what I understand from that is that why Xi Jinping thinks so much is not only uh, because, like you said, um, his his thought is important for uh, his legitimacy and, and it's kind of proof that this leader cares about the realities uh, and, and, and cares about distilling the purest form of truth, but also because thinking is more important than theorizing. And so... Uh, and because he needs, to, he wants to be in the pantheon of, you know, every time you read some Chinese literature right now in official propaganda, they will tell you, right, Xi Jinping with the thought of a great Marxist historian strategist and so on so you know you want that position so if you want that position you must create uh, and if you if he's making the case that he, China is in a new era he must define what that new era is because based on how he defines it is how policy will be shaped and therefore he must define sort of the components of that new era for different aspects of society Right. Um, absolutely. So, right. There's, of course, a very strong personal imperative attached here. Um, and uh, it's also directly linked to the fact that uh, within the Chinese ideological framework, it's not pure Marxism, but also Marxism that evolves and adapts to the Chinese realities. And that's why it's Chinese characteristics, socialism absolutely. with Chinese characteristics. Right. So, of course, this is like Xi Jinping's legacy and Mark adaptation of Marxism in Chinese realities. And so, on the subject of what this truth, what this thought and reality is, uh, what do you make of what was said at this national conference and even in the past about uh, culture and ideological work? Um, like for a fact, we know that uh, in uh, 2016 or 2017, four self-confidences were um made part of the CCP charter and one of them was self-confidence in culture of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And so, um, do you think this kind of Xi Jinping thought, one of the pillars is to push this confidence in the culture and uh, what other aspects or pillars do you think kind of make a part of this? Even though the announcement is very new, I wanted to know your thoughts. So I think if you look at this conference, right, so this conference on national sort of ideological, cultural and propaganda uh, work conference, uh, it happens once every five years. Um, under Xi Jinping's tenure, this is the third conference that has happened. Um, 
at each of these conferences, if you see, you will see a general evolution of his views. Uh, and today, those views are sort of concretized within this one thought, right? Uh, so they've been given much more formal shape. But you will see this sort of um, general evolution of what Xi Jinping's view on culture is. Uh, I think we need to sort of step back and first understand what is the scope of when he says culture? What does he mean? Um, because culture can be very abstract, right? So let's try and pin down specific things. You will have uh, the role of the media, the news media. You will have the role of uh, mainstream, you know, entertainment, television, gaming, the internet, cyberspace as a whole. You will have traditional aspects of culture such as literature, art, photography, painting, books, poetry, music. Um, so you have a wide scope of things which will uh, fall within the category of culture, right? And you will have lots of industries that therefore come within the category. So for example, gaming industry is one thing that will come within this category, right? So when the Chinese say culture, they mean this sort of broad scope of things. Now, if you go back to 2013, which was when the first conference of propaganda and ideological and cultural work took place under Xi Jinping, you will see that his primary objective at that point of time was essentially to say that you need to be able to, or the party state needs to be able to bring the media within its ambit much more. Now, this is a time where, you know, China was... Um, you know, the who when period had just ended and China was sort of far more liberal, at least in terms of its media coverage. There was lots of criticism. There was lots of much more open coverage, uh, you know, and there was also much more open discussion about inner party strife and so on and so forth. Um, and corruption and all was highlighted quite regularly, right? The party's control over some of these things was waning. Chinese uh, popular culture, you know, art was very different. Uh, there was much more sort of ex fear expression, fear criticism. Chinese movies and entertainment sort of touched many more different subjects. What Xi Jinping's argument initially was that, look, you need to bring all of these things under party control. So the party control needs to be strengthened. Party's understanding of leveraging technology and the impact of technology on cyberspace needs to be strengthened. Also, the most important sort of takeaway uh, or two important takeaways were that firstly, um, the cyberspace or the internet domain or, you know, cultural domain is an ideological battlefield. So it's not just something that's happening. It's something where there is a contest for narrative dominance. Um, and he predominantly saw it from the perspective of the undermining of the party, whether within or without uh, blaming the West. And the second thing was the party needs to reorient cultural endeavors. So whether it is movies, television, news, whatever. Um, from the perspective also of being people-centered. So what does that mean? One, one part of that sort of means um, avoiding ostentatiousness, avoiding glorification of certain things, being more telling the people's story sort of stuff, you know, so being more grounded, telling the party's narrative, uh, talking about issues that matter to the people as opposed to, you know, fanciful stories and things like that. Now, has that necessarily happened? I mean, I don't know. Would you call the burst of science fiction in China as telling the people's story? Would you call uh, different kinds of uh, music emerging from China telling the people's story? But what Xi Jinping has been basically do doing is that everything must go back to this idea of communist people-centered roots and, you know, so that's how the media needs to also focus. And of course, the primary objective of all of that is to strengthen the party's legitimacy. 
In 2018, um, there was structural efforts that was taken to try and shift this, right? So I think in 2018 is when Xi Jinping visited a bunch of media organizations um, and he uh, in Beijing and he uh, said something like, uh, you know, oh, you must carry the party's voice or you must, the party must be the media surname, right? So the emphasis is essentially that, that you must enhance party control and you must create a sense of distinctness about China and distinct success of China and the Communist Party um, so that you ward off potential quote-unquote color revolutions, which is essentially efforts by what he sees as the West undermining the legitimacy of the Communist Party. So craft compelling narratives which support the party-state system. In this conference, he put out what are called these seven exertions, efforts, aspects, um, which essentially reiterate some of these ideas, right? They talk about strengthening the party's leadership over uh, propaganda, ideology and culture, deepening uh, the sense of socialist ideology as this guiding and leading force for society, applying socialist core values, strengthening the credibility and influence of media. Important that he's still talking about the need for the credibility of the media to be strengthened. You know, uh, transformation of relying on Chinese culture, so on and so forth. Uh, developing cultural sectors, so industries in that sector without necessarily undermining them, but guiding the development in a certain direction. Um, and you've seen that, right? Today, the biggest hits in China in terms of movies are the more sort of patriotic movies than, you know, uh, previously you would have different kinds of movies which could be critical. Today you have the more nationalistic, jingoistic, patriotic movies. So I think that that's the change that's taking place. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Right. Um, I think that's very interesting because uh, all of it essentially uh, sounds like, you know, when they say that you have to scientifically uh, produce culture, you have to make sure that your online communication is scientific. It's uh, it, it's people centric. It talks about the, the people and uh, kind of communicates the right voice of China. What they're essentially saying is that it's opening a door for the party to govern what is said uh, in, in communication communication in videos in the online space and um, the latter being extremely important because um, now there are individual strategies being crafted for how the cyberspace can be used by different sections of society so one of it is for the people one of it is for how the PLA can use it one of it is for how bureaucrats can use it so they 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 can't have they can't even have accounts on TikTok because there can be uh, potential use that isn't necessarily in the benefit of the people. All of that said, um, what, where exactly do you think is this voice of China lacking? Why exactly uh, is the party feeling a need to exacerbate it when, you know, one can say that China is all Western media and uh, domestic social media talks about? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that what you've asked is a qu quite a critical question, right? It goes to the heart of the fact that authoritarian systems, particularly systems like uh, communist systems, which sort of veer towards totalitarianism, have embedded within them this deep insecurity, right? So you will const your need for control, um, particularly as you've centralized more authority and more power, um, is extremely, extremely high. Um, and therefore, you will try and control all sorts of undertakings. And culture can be really important because it is a mark. It can be. It can provide you the sort of spark of resistance, right? 
the idea that if you just go back and look at how zero COVID ended, um, the fact that you had a white paper movement, right, an A4 paper movement, um, it, it tells you that resistance can take different forms. It can take art and getting, and therefore uh, you will see, you know, all authoritarian systems. Uh, crack down on culture and shape and do that in different forms, right? Whether do that in the form of promoting patriotism, nationalism, uh, differentiating yourself from, by defining some other, repudiating that there are certain truths that are self-evident universally and so on and so forth, right? And I think Xi Jinping has done that and he's not unique in that, that he's an authoritarian who's doing that. Other authoritarians around the world, current and past also continue to do it. What he's also, what has been interesting is that he has tried to systematically, uh, and I think if you look at this particular conference that happened uh, uh, last week, what you will see is that he specifically says two things. One is that uh, over the last decade, um, ever since he has been in power, there has been a fundamental shift in the ideological landscape of the country, uh, and which has been a positive shift from his point of view, right? So his control has strengthened. So, uh, and he and they say that, you know, this is primarily due to Xi Jinping's leadership and the Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, which essentially signifies that they are satisfied significantly with the change that has happened. Yet, when you've defined something as a battlefield, um, and when you are potentially engaged in what you believe is a systems competition with the West, you will want to keep your guard high and you will want to snuff out diverse voices. You will want to amplify what you believe are positive voices. An example, again, COVID is a great example, right? Through the years of the pandemic, what you saw was Chinese social media, Chinese mainstream media, the effort that was made by the party state is to try and push the positive agenda of, hey, look, we've handled this the best. The US has handled it perhaps the worst. You had constant negative information about dysfunction in America um, and you had constant positive information about uh, beautiful mobilization in China and absolutely perfect policy and everything is wonderful. And, you know, you had comparisons of everything saying that China was doing better than anybody could have imagined and so on and so forth. Of course, when the pandemic, when zero COVID ended, there was complete chaos in China. And if it was so wonderful, you would not have seen the kind of protests that you saw. Um, and that complete chaos and the death toll that followed was still not covered. So even today, Chinese media and Chinese official discourse boasts of the fact that we were the one of the largest countries in the world with the least, with the lowest amount of death toll. But we don't have an official death toll. Right? They stopped publishing numbers once they ended zero COVID after a certain point of time. So this is well thought. Uh, and it is well thought because there is deep sense of insecurity about losing the narrative at home. And if you lose the narrative at home, you lose legitimacy to govern. Um, so therefore, you see this sort of construction. The, the fact that this is today part of canonized thought, to me, that is extremely important because it has implications even beyond Xi Jinping. Right, it becomes part of, like I said, canonized thought. Right, so you, it'll have implications even when Xi Jinping is potentially out of uh, power. Right, because it leaves legacies that subsequent leaders might want to latch onto, and it requires for leaders to not latch onto that. It requires tremendous political sagacity. Uh, which say at a certain point of time, Deng Xiaoping showed, right? Uh, because Mao Zedong's successor was latching on to Mao Zedong's ideas when he said the two whatevers. Deng Xiaoping repudiated that. But it took a lot of effort to pass that history resolution in the early 1980s, which repudiated parts of Mao Zedong thought, right? 
to do that subsequently when Xi Jinping goes, it might be very, very difficult, right? Uh, and it requires, again, somebody with political capacity, power, with political heft to be able to do that. At present, there's nobody that seems like they might be in that position. At least when Mao was around, you had this older generation of revolutionaries who could potentially make that shift because they believed in something else. Um, today, there might be lots of people who believe in other pathways in China, but do they have the political heft? Uh, I don't see that at present. Um, so that's why to me, the idea of this being canonized in thought is really, really important. Right. Um, I mean, uh, and that would be the kind of, like that will have to be um, a dimension altering political heft because like we see with Hu Jintao also that uh, like a lot of the um, imprint ideologically and even uh, authority wise in the CMC or uh, in the work he did uh, was from um, his predecessor Jiang Zemin and even Deng Xiaoping and that's perhaps also why we don't see his name attached to <laughs> the scientific theory right but yes yeah, so what I understand from it is that it's the reason why this voice has to continue to be uh, amplified and the emphasis on amplification is because it's not just about being satisfied with the work you've done but also to make sure that now you've reached the top position and you have to maintain it because the competition is uh, keeping it alive right and um, you mentioned uh, canonization and one of the important aspects is that it will have uh, ripple effects across um, the, the the future leadership but also I feel it is important because it could essentially indicate that some ministries or um, uh, departments within the party state system will get more authority. So what do you think um, will be the implications for this on the work that say the Ministry of Culture or the United Front Work Department essentially do? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I don't know if they will get more authority. What I do think will happen uh, is what is currently happening, which is, and I, uh, you know, for anybody who wants to understand uh, how uh, Chinese political ideas uh, become part of policy and become part of, you know, bureaucracies, this is a perfect time. I would recommend that, you know, if you haven't, uh, go back to Monday and start reading Chinese media for the next 15, 20 days. And what you will see is how... When an idea gets concretized, uh, you know, which is at this conference, the uh, in you know early this uh, last week was that the outcome was that you had this canonized Xi Jinping thought on culture. Subsequently, you've had reports of uh, different officials from at different levels of government, uh, whether it is propaganda department officials, whether it is people from the Chinese Writers China Writers Association, whether it is uh, social science researchers from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Um, whether it is media outlets um, such as CGTN in today's People's Daily, as we're recording today on Thursday, you have the CGTN deputy director uh, talking about how, you know, we'll be studying this so that we can uh, amplify, we can improve our international discourse. Um, so you will have all these different people who work in these related fields, uh, whether within or outside government. And they will start to interpret what these ideas that the leader has, you know, finally permitted and they finally become candidates, what these ideas mean for their specific domain. And that, and how do you then implement that, right? And then subsequently, you know, to right now is a process where there is this churn taking place where people are trying to figure out what do these ideas imply for their domain. Um, and again, not, not all of these ideas are terribly new, so... There's already been a process, but now because it has become canon in thought, uh, the imperative for implementing them becomes much higher, right? Because if you don't, you are actually fundamentally violating what has become 
core guiding ideology, um, which can come with stricter consequences. So it becomes, it's, it's an important time to just observe firstly how the interpretation is happening. Um, and then sub, in down the road, uh, in some time, uh, you know, you will have reports of people talking about how they have implemented it. So how did they interpret it and how did they implement it uh, and what were the outcomes? Uh, and so, for example, uh, in some cases, if the, if, the, if the interpretation is that we must amplify uh, speeches by the leader, you will have newspapers reporting in their final report saying, hey, look, when Xi Jinping gave XYZ speech, uh, we published 78 articles over the next three months discussing his speech, right? So that's your reporting mechanism back to your bosses. Uh, and you will see all that taking place uh, within the media. So if you're, if you're interested in how these things become part of policy, uh, you will see uh, you will see at present um so it would be interesting particularly if you're observing some cultural industries in china whether it is entertainment gaming uh, social media observe currently how and whether policies shift uh, and in which direction do they shift um do you see uh, you know movies which are far more nationalistic far more patriotic far more focused on red heritage and all that do you see them becoming much more prominent than they are before? Uh, do you see uh, promotions in that direction? Do you see more tourism, which is focused on issues of nationalism and so on and so forth? Uh, so what do you see happening? And that will tell you how these ideas have been interpreted. What, what you have seen over the last decade is this, more nationalism, more red culture, uh, more party control, more unified voice from state and media across the board. You see more restrictions on uh, gaming, um, and so on and so forth, right? So uh, observe what's happening and whether pursuit of profit becomes secondary to pursuit of political correctness. Um, and that will tell you what that political correctness implies. Right, right. And of, of course, like you said, this brings a great media opportunity for outlets as much as it is a chance for uh, the party state to kind of amplify uh, the voice. And um, do we also expect to see um, some push towards innovation even in this regard? that, you know, some authorities, departments would have the opportunity to innovate. And uh, like you said, because implementation will be, um, interpretation and implementation will be important. So do you think even here, uh, there is room uh, for um, kind of th these entities that come under the ambit of this canon to interpret it in their own accord? Yeah, I think there's always room. People are very creative and uh, yeah, and people are very creative and also, uh, you know, um, people also... Uh, come from different uh, interest uh, bases, right? So your uh, different ministries, different departments have different sets of interests um, and they will try and cast their interests within the light of what the leadership has said. Because look, obviously some of these, if you go and read the seven exertions or seven efforts or seven aspects that I talked about, uh, they're very general. They're very generic, right? And they're uh, they are open to lots of interpretation. And that's by design, right? You do, you do that by design because uh, you allow for people to interpret and innovate and do different things. Um, but at the same time, you want to maintain basically macro control. Uh, and that is the goal that you want to keep uh, continuing to uh, enforce. So in, in, that, in that sense, you will see, yes, you will see lots of interpretation. You will see, and you will also see a lot of guessing, right? You know, um, uh, you will see lots of regulatory action which might have been pent up which you wanted to take, but you didn't know whether you could. But now there might be greater permissibility and therefore you unleash. Um, and this is what happened, you know, when the whole technology crackdown happened a couple of years ago. Uh, a lot of it was pent up regulatory energy, which got unleashed because there was permissibility. And then suddenly there was a rollback. That, hey, look, we don't, you know, and that permissibility came when the leader 
talked about the idea of common prosperity. Um, so I think that there are different triggers and different reasons why things happen. So we'll have to wait and see how this plays out and whether there is any specific implication or not. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Manoj. That was really insightful. And I think this uh, the timing is also very ironic because as we talk about more control over media, we've seen the release of the Australian journalist Chung Lee in, uh, from China. And uh, of course, like you said, we have to wait and watch for the implications. Some implications could, of course, also be for foreign journalists working in China and, you know, uh, whether or not they adhere to their reportage adheres to Xi Jinping thought and culture. Yeah, I don't think foreign journalists in China are really going to care about Xi Jinping thought and culture. I think their concern will primarily be around, um, you know, media restrictions have been a product of obviously expanding party control over the information domain, but also a product of geopolitical tensions. Um, and I think that it's a really good sign that Chang Lei was released. And I'm really happy to see her out. Uh, she was a former colleague. Um, and it's, uh, but I don't think that has to necessarily do with any of this. I think it has to do with uh, the direction of China-Australia relations. Um, I don't think any one of us ever thought that it had anything to do with national security. Great, excellent. Uh, on that note, thank you so much, uh, Manoj, for your insights. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into another episode of All Things Policy. Thank you. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila.inst or our website takshashila.org.in.